Well, I was a fanatic. There's no doubt a fanatic. My goal was to get carried out of the wrestling room because of exhaustion, and it never happened. The thing it did for me every day about 6 o'clock is that when I got out, I looked back in, and there was nobody else there. Bottom line was I didn't reach my goal. So guess what happened? I went back in the room again. But I got some quality time because of just some kind of a fanatic goal. Welcome back to Wrestling Changed My Life podcast, where we interview folks who have had experience with wrestling in the past and have used the lessons that the sport teaches to achieve success later in life. Welcome to today's episode, and this is your host, Ryan Warner. Today's guest is former coach Bill Lamb. Coach Lamb led the University of North Carolina wrestling team for over 30 years, winning 14 ACC titles along the way. And he brought this program, folks. From oblivion to a perennial contender, coaching national champions, All-Americans, you name it. He now is a keynote speaker with his Impact and Legacy Summit, where he teaches organizations about leadership, about attitude technique. And in this episode, we cover a lot of ground. First of all, we cover what it was like to bring the program from, as I mentioned earlier, oblivion to a perennial contender and the obstacles he had to overcome. We talk about an interesting spat he had with legendary coach Dean Smith and how that went on to form a lifelong friendship. And we go into his thoughts on attitude technique. And then we also talk about an interesting story about Michael Jordan, um, who was obviously a player when uh, Coach Lane was at UNC. So this is a great episode, one of my favorites, and we hope you enjoy it. For more episodes, please visit WrestlingChangeMyLife.org. If you're listening to this now, please leave us a rating or subscribe on iTunes. It really helps us a lot. And that's it, folks. Sit back and enjoy this episode with Coach Bill Lamb. All right, Bill Lamb, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. I'm excited for this. I, I know you have, you have quite the career. Um, you know, you're doing a lot of corporate speaking engagements now. You spent 30 years as the head coach at University of North Carolina, but you know, a lot of people sometimes forget that before that you were a wrestler and wrestled at Oklahoma, I believe. And so I'd love to just start with a, a background on yourself and kind of how you got up to the point where you were considered to be the head coach at UNC. Well, I'm very blessed. I've been around uh, great people and they've been a big influence on my life. And uh, probably one of the biggest places when, is when I was at the University of, of Oklahoma and I had uh Port Robertson, who was an Olympic coach and then coached the national championship team as my freshman coach. And then actually, uh, Doug Bluebaugh was there as an assistant freshman coach as well, who was an Olympic champion. And then, uh, Tommy Evans, who's a couple time national champ and outstanding wrestler in the nation and coached a national championship team and Olympic champ, Olympian champions and Olympic coach. Uh, they taught me such great principles. And they were such good people that I was just very fortunate to be in that uh, room. We had great people in the room. We had Wayne Botman, was the captain of the team then, and he went on to be on the Olympic teams and Olympic coach. My workout partner was Wayne Wells, who was an Olympic champion on the same team with Gable and the Peterson. So I was very fortunate to be around as good a wrestling as there ever was. And what were some of the, the key takeaways for you from that experience? Well, actually, the main takeaway was uh, that I use now when I, t- when I teach. Uh, Coach Evans, I was a freshman. He said, uh, Billy, would you like to go watch a match with me? And I said, sure. So he put me in. He flew his own plane, and he flew me over to Tulsa. And we watched the tournament. And, and on the way back, flying back, I said, 
coach, I said, you know, you recruit all over the nation and, and you have such great people in the room. How do you know who and what to recruit? And he said, Bill, it's real, really pretty easy. It's just like a wrestling match. And I said, well, I don't understand. He said, well, the first period will go to the athlete with the most talent. I don't care what it is. Talent's important, and they usually win the first period. The second period will go to the person who's done the work, done the running, done the push-ups, done the drilling, run the technique. And he said, and the third period will always go to the person with the most heart. So I look for the person who has the second and third period. And, of course, we want talent. But the work ethic and the heart is what determines the type of person we really go after. And I just never forgot that. Wow, that's awesome. And it's it's things like that, the intangibles that are, are tough to tough to measure or tough to, to grasp unless you see them, I guess. Well, it is. And what's so great about that is uh, if you look, and I call it the three periods of the champion, if you look at the great teams and people have done it, you look at the, the you know, they watch the the hockey team that was supposed to be a miracle on ice. But if you watch yeah. them, they never they never won a first period. They'd pull even the second period, and they never lost a third period. And, and uh, they end up calling it a miracle. But it wasn't a miracle. They just used the three periods. And they, the coach did a great job of getting a tremendous heart out of those guys. Absolutely. That's a great movie. And a great story. Um, okay, so you have this career at Oklahoma, and then you – you know, I read somewhere that when you took the job at UNC in the in seventy two seventy three, you thought maybe I'll be here a few years and I'm going to head back to to wrestling country because you know University of North Carolina is not known as a wrestling powerhouse at that time. Um, I think I read that maybe they had almost no winning seasons up to that point. So just give us a sense, right? How bad was the state of UNC wrestling when you got there? What what was it like in those early years? Well, I'll give you a little example of what it was really like. Uh, I got. I got in there, and the reason I came was Homer Rice, who's the athletic director, was a football coach at Oklahoma. The first match he ever saw was the night that we beat Oklahoma State. They hadn't been beaten 82 matches, and he saw me wrestling, never forgot it. He's the one who called and invited me to come out. But at anyway, uh, when, when we sat there, I called a team meeting because recruiting was really kind of over, and uh, three people showed up, and I said, wait a minute, we we got 10 weights, we got three people here, we got a problem. And so I went, I had coached in high school for five years, so I went back to Oklahoma and picked up a, some kids that had not signed, and we brought them back, and that's what our team was. And, but what I really found, when I, what I had to do is I had to change the culture. They had no idea what it was about. They didn't know what winning was about. Uh, and uh, so we had to change the culture. And probably the two people who helped change the culture more than anybody were Joe Galli and Carter Mario. Uh, their work ethic was unbelievable. Uh, the team in there before would, they would get a keg of beer and go watch the lacrosse team play. And, uh, you know, they came by in the pickup truck and offered Joe and Carter said, come on guys. And they said, no thanks. And they just kept running on the hill and they just changed the whole atmosphere and the culture of the team. And then that culture started changing and we started getting recruits in that we needed to have, uh, you know, like, People, C.D. Mock ended up coming. He was our first national champion, and they said mm-hmm. uh, people were telling him, yeah, you don't want to go to Carolina. You'll never be any good. And besides that, uh, you won't like Lamb. And uh, Carter and Joe changed his mind and said, look, it, he's going to work you hard. He's a disciplinarian. But if you want to be good, he'll help you be as good as you can be. And thank goodness they, they influenced him, and he came. And so that's when it all started changing. And how long was that into your tenure? 
Actually, uh, it's it's kind of funny because Coach Rice is one of the person who taught us the attitude technique and and all those sort of things, and he taught the aspect about goals. And so I had goals, and and uh, I stated them. I said, well, you know, if I take this job, I said I'll uh, we'll win the ACC within five years, and we'll be in the top ten in the nation within ten years. And everybody kind of laughed, you know. And uh, so uh, what happened yeah. is, in within six years, we won the ACC championship. In the ninth year, we finished fifth in the nation. So uh, we had goals, we had breakdowns, we had things we had to do, but we were very fortunate to have it do it. And, and the kids that did the work are the ones that deserve all the credit. Definitely. And those those stories of coaches coming into a program and turning them around, all of them somehow come back to culture. And, I, and I'm finishing up a book now. Bill Walsh, um, who was the, the head coach of the 49ers for all those years in the 80s, he talks about that same thing where when he came into the 49ers organization, they were 2-14 and 14 the year before, they were 2-14 and 14 his first year, and then 6-10 and 10 his second year, and then the third year is when they won the Super Bowl with, with Joe Montana and Jerry Rice. But, you know, what he talks about is it changing the mindset of the people there to have higher expectations and, you know, focusing on the little details that, that give the sense of professionalism, right? So, so walking around with, with your shirt tucked in and, and putting in the hard work. So it sounds like you did some of that, but you also had some athletes there to help kind of well, carry I, we, the, the torch for you. Well, we did do that, and, and we did change the attitude. Uh, you need to understand this. Uh, when I coached at Norman High School, uh, Stan Abel was coaching at Putnam City, and Tom Chesbrough was coaching at Stillwater. I mean, they both those guys have been coached national championship teams, and so we had those kind of coaches in high school. And wow. uh, I was used to having a couple thousand people at our high school match and I'll never no forget. Way. Yeah, you know, we always did. And then uh, I'll never forget my first match at, at, at North Carolina. I had those guys that came from Oklahoma out there. And I said, look at guys, there might not be the same crowd that we had and what you had at, at the high school meets. But at the end, uh, when you go to nationals, the crowd's the same for everybody. And I don't know if I was giving them a pep talk or I was giving myself one because I knew it was going to be challenging. Well, I had no idea how challenging it was going to be. I walked out in the gym, and there were five people. There was the janitor, <laughs> there was my wife, and uh, two parents, and that was it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what have I done? You know, because I left a job with Procter & Gamble. I took about a $30,000 cut in pay, and in 1972, that was a big cut in pay. And sure. so I thought I'd made a mistake. Well, in 1994, we hosted the NCAA championships. And we set an attendance record. We finished in the top uh, six, and we had a national champion. If I'd have told those five people that we were going to do that, uh, they'd all said, "That guy right. needs a white coat." <laughs> you're, you're crazy, Bill, and you're crazy. They would say. So, before we go on to some of the speaking engagements that you're doing now, because that's, I think that's going to resonate really well with with the listeners. I'd love to again just kind of go back to some of those early days. So, you know, you come in, you have you have probably really ambitious goals for yourself. And then the reality sets in that five people come to your first dual meet, which is, which is almost unbelievable that they even had a program at that point. Like, did you ever well, experience self doubt? And like, if so, how did you get over that? Like what were some of your, your, I guess, techniques to get over that self doubt? Well, you know, the hard part was, first of all, the year before uh, I came, in fact, for the five years before they won one and lost 11. Our first year there, we won 11 and lost one. But they didn't wrestle uh, the competition that they needed to to be a national team. So we changed that schedule and things started changing. 
one of the things that helped me was Dean Smith, who was the basketball coach. Uh, he was very uh, supportive of me. And, you know, one want, who really helped a lot, which people don't understand now because I don't think they do it, but uh, Tommy Evans came out. Uh, Myron Roderick came out and put on a clinic for me. And uh, Les Anderson and, and uh, the group from Iowa State, they came out and they helped us build the program. And uh, I'm thankful to those guys. I don't think I could have done it by myself. And that's something a lot of people may not know, that I did, and I didn't know as well, is that when you got there, there were only 60 high schools in North Carolina. And then when you left 30 years later, there were over 300. So the impact yep. you had on just the state athletic scenes is incredible. Um, just real quick, so you mentioned Dean Smith, and I was waiting for uh, an opportunity to, to shoehorn this in. But uh, I read that, I don't know if this was early on in your career or not, but you, know, you, you passed Dean Smith in the hallway and you asked him where he's going. And he said he was going to a, a, a coaches summit. And I yeah. think he said something along the lines of, why are you going there? You're already one of the best coaches. And, you know, he said, well, you always have to keep learning, which sounds self-explanatory now, but could you maybe just tell us that story? I thought that was really interesting. Well, yeah, that was a, a great uh, aspect. You know, what's really funny is uh, he was a, the, the coach at the Air Force Academy before he came to North Carolina, and uh, they didn't have any facilities that it was too early. And my dad was the athletic director, uh, associate athletic director at the University of Colorado. And he provided those things for Coach Smith. I didn't know that. I didn't know that dad even knew Coach Smith. Uh, and I found out later they used to play golf together. Uh, so anyway, uh, he was he's probably one of the guys of the highest esteem and still is in the state of North Carolina. And I saw him exactly like you said. He was, we were passing the hall. I said, hey, coach, how you doing? He said, great. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to a coach's clinic. I said, you're going what? He said, I'm going to a coach's clinic. I said, coach, you're the best coach. You're the winning coach in the nation. What are you doing going to a coach's clinic? He said, Bill, he says, you don't understand. If I only, I'm not going to change my philosophy. I'm not going to ch change what we really do. But if I pick up one little thing, that one little thing makes a difference of being able to stay on top. So that was a great lesson and a lesson that we teach in our leadership aspects as well. And it's one that he shared with me. And so uh, I kept trying to just learn one little thing. You never stop learning. You never stop growing. And that makes a difference in your success. That's awesome. What a cool story. And you, you, you have to be fortunate to be you know, around someone who has that type of um, that type of mindset, that type of mind for coaching and leadership as Coach Smith does. And I know a lot of people would say the same thing about you. Well, I, I, th I appreciate that. Well, here's what's so, so funny. I'll tell you a funny story because uh, the first night for our first match, uh, you know, he was mad at his team and we wrestled the same time, same place they played basketball and they were having practice. I was waiting for practice to be over so we could put the mat down. And, you know, having come from Oklahoma, we outdrew basketball. So, you know, I was thinking, okay, it's time for you to get off. And uh, so he didn't move. So I kind of walked down some stairs and he looked over at me. He says, we're not done. And when I'm done, I'll tell you. And, you know, I'm 29 years old. So the hair on the back of my hair goes up and I'm getting angry, but I know better than to cause a scene in front of athletes. So I left. And the next, then we had that night and five people there. But the next day I was still upset. So I went to his office and I knocked on the door and the secretary says, yes, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'd like to see coach Smith. She says, do you have an appointment? I said, no, I don't have an appointment. I coach her. I just like to see him. She said, if you don't have an appointment, you can't see him. And I'm getting hot. And he hears my voice. He said, Bill, is that you? I said, yeah. He said, well, come on in. So we, I came in and, uh, 
I closed the door behind me and I said, if you ever, if you ever talk to me like that in front of people again, I said, you and I are going to go at it. And what I didn't realize who he was at that point in time, he, he could have just said, well, Bella, we don't have wrestling here anymore. And they, they wouldn't have. But to show how big a man he was, he said, Bill, I'm sorry. I'll be glad to write a note to your team. I said, no, I just want wrestling accepted here like the other sports. And he, from that point on, everywhere he went, he'd put his arm around me. He said, this is going to be our next great sport at Carolina. So he was a big factor in terms of us being successful. That's that's a great story, but what's even more apparent is that you just went right to him, and that's just the kind of person you are. A lot of people would sit on that, and they start to make up stories in their mind and start to create all these assumptions, but you just went right to him the next day and, and shot him straight. That's, a, that's, a, that's amazing. Well, that's and kind of raised that that's way. That's how you are. <laughs> well, sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad, but, yeah, I can't help who I am. I was taught to stand up for what I believe in, and that's what I'm going to do. I love that. And I, just real quick, I'm – I'm kind of interested in this. So, it, what what kind of sway did Dean Smith have at UNC at that time? Was he like what, kind of just? I mean, that was like the premier sport, right? Basketball at no, that time. It's, it's, it still is uh, here at this school. I mean, it's basketball first and football second, and we just hired Mac Brown back, and I hope football gets back up there. But you know, you got to look at the number of national championships they've won here and he was the winner of coach in history and then Bobby Knight broke his record and then Krzyzewski broke it but at that point in time he was the winning this basketball coach in the history and and the people here uh treated they thought he was like a god I mean it was amazing how they how they handled and, and thought of him uh, wow. what's also amazing in his first year they hung him in effigy so to make that transition because he didn't win at the first and uh, so to make that transition to become the most popular coach ever was, here was is pretty big. Man, that's a lot of standards to come in and expect something right away like that. That's that's pretty pretty crazy to hear. Um, so, coach, now so you retired in two thousand three, I believe it was, and and now you've gone on this speaking circuit, so to speak, and, and you you call it the Impact and Legacy Summit. So I'd love for you just to to talk us through what do you talk about to these folks? You know, who are you presenting to and like what are some of the biggest takeaways for you? Well, actually, it was, I was very lucky. I started, did the first one in Michigan, and I was lucky to have a good group to work with. But uh, what we did, we brought in the most successful people, and we asked them to share the principles that they understood and what helped them be successful. And other businesses paid pretty large sums of money to come and, and hear these speakers. And so from that, I thought, you know, we can do this ourselves. Uh, the guys that graduated from Carolina, the wrestling people, we got CEOs of billion dollar companies, we got CEOs of law firms, we got orthopedic surgeons, we got, uh, you know, just top people, top coaches. And so I, so I started bringing those guys in and inviting businesses still and other people and teaching the principles that it took to be success, uh, to be successful. And, and of course, one of the aspects and one of the most important aspects is choice. You know, you are where you are today from the choice that you made be who you're going to be tomorrow from the choices that you make from this point on. So we would start teaching them how to make better choices. You know, when you have your core values and your priorities in alignment, your choice is almost made for you. You might not like it, but that pretty much tells you the choice you should be making. Um, you know, like if your examples of priorities, your faith, yourself, your family, your country, your extended family, your career, if that's a priority, and then the examples of values, of integrity, and ethical and moral, unselfish, you know, when you line those up, uh, it almost makes a, a decision for you. 
And so we start off with choices and then we go from that into your attitude. And, you know, it's been said, uh, a winner's edge is, is attitude, not aptitude. And the criteria for success in attitude is a competition, you know, a combination of self discipline, a competitive fire or passion and self belief. And so we start teaching that. How do you get that? And we do those sort of aspects and then we get on, on into, you know, you are what you are because of your beliefs. And uh, you, we start teaching them how to be able to believe in the things they need to believe in to be successful. So it's it's choice, it's attitude, it's beliefs. So choice, <coughs> excuse me, That's that makes a lot of sense. And it's really just the small, minute choices that compound over time that have the biggest effect. Um, yeah, and, the they, impact. And, and then your attitude, of course, is big. But then a lot of people don't understand you know, the importance of, of having vision, you know, uh, you got to have a, you got to be able to dream and have a large vision, you know, because if you don't, it doesn't, it doesn't stir your blood, blood to the point where you get excited about it and you move forward. It, go, it, it becomes a wish and just goes away in a day or two. But when you start dreaming and have a vision of something big and you start seeing some reality that starts coming apart, then you start believing in it. And, uh, you know, you go from that in your vision and, and you, you, you know, we teach them how to do it. You short term, long term, intermediate goals and, um, how that affects your vision. And so we start teaching these same principles that you need to have to be a successful athlete and how it applies in the business world. Okay. I'm, I'm loving where we're going here. I just want to make sure I'm following. So the attitude piece, let's go back to that real quick. So you, you pretty much break down attitude as being a combination of self-discipline, you having that internal fire, that internal drive, and then self-belief. Is that right? Yep. Okay. And it's it's interesting. You know, almost every successful person. I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a limb, coach, and say every successful person. They have an enthusiastic, upbeat attitude. They're positive, and the way they handle external events that others perceive to be negative is a little bit different, right? They they see things differently than most people do, and, and keep that positivity in mind. I think throughout throughout the Throughout their journey, it is, and that's something that is almost always consistent across successful people, no matter how you define that. Well, you're right, and and you know that's why I want to give so many other people credit for the success I was able to have is because having a, uh, an assistant coach like Mark Manning for eight years, um, just when you are where you hang around, and and to have his positive influence, I mean, he'd come into work because I'm a little bit grouchy, and he'd come into work every day, say and smiling and looking it's a great day to be alive. You know? And he would just keep me loose enough that I would handle the guys a little bit different. And uh, he just had an unbelievable positive uh, attitude and, and was able to portray it and live it every day. And I think that that's one of the reasons he was such a big influence on Jordan Burroughs. Uh, he just has yeah. that. And, and uh, I was thankful to have him as assistant for that many years. Yeah, I okay. I, I honestly didn't know that he was an assistant for you. I thought he wrestled for you. So that, that's a, that's an amazing hire you did there. When did he join the team? Uh, he coached for me. I, I want to. He was there in the in the eighties. Uh, I'd say about eighty six through uh, ninety three. He was there about eight years, and uh, then he went and he ended up being assistant at Oklahoma and worked with USA Wrestling. And then he got the Northern Iowa job. And then he got the Nebraska job, but we stay in touch with each other every, you know, at least once a week. And 
I had to keep, try to keep him fired up and uh, be an encourager to him, and he still, still does the same for me. So um, it's, it's a relationship and a friendship that will last for a lifetime. That's awesome. Wrestling has a way of doing that. In sports in general, but wrestling seems really seems to, to do that. Um, okay, so I just want to kind of go back to your to your uh, philosophy here. And the reason I'm asking is I'm in goal-setting mode now for 2019. So, uh, you know, selfishly, I wanted to have you on to just talk about your thoughts on, you know, what principles are consistent across successful people, but also, like, what are some of your internal beliefs and how do you catalog that in your mind? And so you, you've mentioned choice, you've mentioned attitude. Then you get to the beliefs and vision part. Uh, just talk to us about that a little bit. What what goes into that, and what do you talk to people about when you get to this part? Well, I, I think the vision part is you have to you have to be able to, like I said, dream a little bit big, and then you have to break it down into it and make it goals. If you don't have goals, um, you know, and you don't understand how goals really work, I can almost assure you, you will not be successful. Uh, you have to have short terms, intermediate, and long term goals. And short terms are things that you have to do daily that keeps you fired up, that keeps you believing you can get to the next step. Then the intermediate goals are, you know, five or six weeks, a month, two months down the road. And again, you got to keep score, see how you're doing, and the daily ones keep you going. And then you have to have long-term goals, you know. And what you do by – a lot of people say, yeah, i got goals. And I said, oh, do you? I mean, this is one of the things that Rob Cole fought me the hardest on when he was a wrestler. I said – because I'd make everybody, they had to write their goals down and they had to bring in to and to, tell me why they think they could do it and what they couldn't do. And he said, coach, I don't like to write down goals. I said, well, I don't care if you like to or not. It's part of being on this team and you're going to do it. And so what's so funny about that now is he's such a big believer in that. He makes his team do the same thing. I said, huh, wonder how they're going to react <laughs> to that. Bro. But uh, it's wow. a huge aspect because just saying, them. uh, they, they they don't become reality. Writing them down, it affects a part of your brain, it affects your believing, and then you got to read them every day. You know, when I ask people, I say, okay, how many believe in goals? All the hands go up. I said, how many write them down? About half the hands go up. I said, how many read them every day? And about three or four hands go up. Uh, and that reading them every day is what keeps your belief up, it keeps your work ethic up, it keeps you going and going in the direction that you need to be going. You know, that's, that's great that you touched on that at the end because let's say there's a person that does write their goals down, but then, you know, they start out hot, things are going well. And then, you know, month two, for example, they hit a lull and whether it's yeah. sales aren't going well or something in their personal life isn't going well, they're not feeling at a hundred percent. They're just not feeling upbeat. They're not feeling good. They're not excited. And I think the, the thing you just mentioned that's so key is that, reading those vision goals every day gets you excited about the journey and about the process. And then you can go back to your daily goals because that gets you going. And so, so it sounds like you have the short, that's a daily goal. Um, then you have the intermediate goals and the long-term goals. How are you, I guess, just kind of taking it a step further, peeling back the onion a little bit. So you're big on tracking those and reading them every day. Anything else you'd mention on this piece around, around goal setting? Yeah, I think it's important to uh, keep score. You know, in terms of those things, to ch- when you get it, check it off. You got to celebrate uh, wins. You know, you got to learn from losses. Uh, you got to understand time management. You're only given so so much time, and if you know, but what they say, uh, the bad news is time flies. The good news is you're the pilot. So, you know how you control your time, the things that you do, your priorities, all those 
things tie together in terms of your long-term vision plans and goals in terms of where you want to go for your life. And uh, that, to me, I know that's why Joe Gala is CEO of a billion-dollar company. To me, that's why <clears throat> Carter Mario is the CEO of five different law firms. That's why Doug Weiland, uh, national runner-up, is the, one of the top worth big surgeons in the whole United States. You know, so, uh, you know, Rob Cole, why he's one of the most successful coaches are, because he's gone through all of that, and he knows that, and he teaches that, and all those things will keep your team performing at the, the level they should. They'll keep you performing at the level that you should. And uh, yeah, it's, just, that, it's a process. Yep. It's something you can't avoid. And almost, again, no successful person, regardless of how you define it, is going to say that they don't have goals or they don't have a vision. Um, and I think those are those are the tools that get us there. But the underlying foundation is what's your attitude? You know, what are your routines? What are your habits? I'm big on habits because that's obviously, yep. you know, show me your habits. I'll show you, show you who you are, so to speak. Um, before we go into some of the rapid fire questions, I'd love to spend just a minute on, on Joe. Uh, is it Galli? Yeah. Because uh, you mentioned he, him a few times. I have read up on him. Um, but maybe just talk to us about, like, you know, what was he like and, and why do you think he's so successful now? Well, what's so neat about Joe is he was actually uh, kind of a whipping boy because he wasn't he wasn't the CD mock. He didn't have the talent. He didn't have the same talent that Carter Mario is in, as in as my early years of coaching. You know, you had to keep those guys fired up. So you'd pat them on the back, and sometimes Joe would be doing the work, but he didn't have talent, so I'd be chewing on him. Right. So when I when I learned a big lesson is, uh, and I don't know if you know it, but Joe's in the National Hall of Fame as outstanding American as well. So for wrestling, but really, yeah. And so how he learned that lesson was this: the week before the ACC championship, I was patting on uh, CD because uh, I, I knew he had to win. He was ranked top nationally, and Carlos Mario, uh, he's one of our best. And so I was patting on those guys, and I was chewing Joe pretty hard. And uh, came time to the tournament, CD, uh, CD broke his ankle, had to default. Carter got upset. He comes down to the finals, and Joe has to wrestle a guy that's from Pennsylvania, ranked way above him. And I said, well, Joe, I said, uh, not only do you have to win, if we're going to win the tournament, you have to you, you have to pin this guy, or we're, go we're going to lose it to state. Well, he went out there and caught the kid in the cradle, and Joe had a tremendous cradle and pinned him. And here's the guy that I yelled at all all week long, he came off the mat, he looked at me, and he said, Coach, that one was for you. And just, man, it broke my heart. I thought, here's the guy who yelled at, and we ended up winning the tournament by half a point. And the guy that you yelled at looked at you and said, Coach, that one was for you. And uh, so, you know, that was a big lesson I learned, and um, I'll always be thankful to him doing that. And then, to me, that's why he's gone ahead and been so successful and done the things that he's done. To have the first of all, that story gives me chills. That's a great story. But to have the mental toughness of of Joe to not to not give up or not just kind of phone it in when you're being so hard on him. So many people would break now. I feel like he he's just extremely mentally tough. It sounds like. Well, here's the thing. I'm telling, and this is one of the things I I teach. It's a little saying, just like we have little things you do and, and goals and everything like that. Well, one of the things I teach is the saying: "It's never over till you quit." And so, why do people quit? They quit because they feel sorry for themselves. Now, you can say whatever you want. The marathon runner, when he quits, it's the pain of the, you know, whatever it is, whether the disappointment in the sales loss, whatever. Whenever a person quits, 
it's because they feel sorry for themselves. So how do you get over feeling sorry for yourself? You get thankful. Because whenever you're thankful, your brain will only think one thought at a time. So when you're thankful, you can't feel sorry for yourself. And when you start looking around and see where you are in comparison to everything else and the health that you have, you got no reason you can't be thankful. And uh, so when, when you start to get thankful, the feeling sorry for yourself goes away and you get back up to the level you belong. Amen. Amen, Coach Slam. Let's go. Let's go. I'm getting excited here right now. <laughs> You're getting me going. Um, okay, so let's let's shift into some rapid fire questions. So these can okay. you, know, you can answer them in a sentence or as long as you want. But um, the first one here I wrote down. It's kind of ironic. We were just talking about goal setting, but so when you think about goal setting, do you believe people should set goals based on outcomes or based on effort? So here's an example. Should your goal be to be the national champion? Or should it be to have, you know, consistent days of practice, six days a week for, for six months? Or is it a combination of both? Because we can't control the outcome, but we can't control the effort. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I agree with that. You know, they're both important. But I, I think it's extremely important that you take care of the daily ones. And the ones later on will take care of themselves. But if you, it doesn't matter. If you don't do the daily ones and the work and the ethics and stuff like that, uh, you can have that other one. It's like a day. It isn't going to happen. Uh, but if you don't have that long-term one to aim for and something that keeps you fired up, something that you have that passion to to get to, then uh, you won't get it either. Yep. Okay. And I think that's that's more so what I'm reading now and what I'm, my philosophy is going to be for 2019 is you, know, you have the vision goal, salesperson of the year, national champ. All right, but what does that actually mean? Well, it means that you have to win five matches at the Nationals, or it means you have to sell $2 million. Okay, so that's what it means. So what are we going to do to get there in the next quarter, then the next week, and the next day, so to speak? So I, I think that's, that's something that I'm seeing more and more of, and I, love, I just love your um, kind of backing of that. It helps, helps bring some credibility to it. Um, okay, next question. So you had a 30-year run and have had, a, you know, say 15 – uh, 16 years in public speaking. So what's something you do every day, no matter what, or, or you did every day, no matter what, whether it's, Hey, no matter what, I'm going to meditate every day, or no matter what, I'm going to spend a few minutes in prayer or, or whatever. Like maybe it's getting a workout in. What were some of your daily habits that you did pretty much no matter what? Well, they, they've changed as I've matured. Uh, I used to be a little bit of a wild guy and, uh, but, uh, came around and I found out what's really important and I became a pretty strong Christian. And, and so I never started a day without praying and giving thanks and, and trying to say, okay, what can I do to make somebody else's lives better? And, uh, so I, I never started a morning without that. Got it. And I think, um, I'm just writing that down here. I love that answer. And I think even if someone isn't a religious person, spending a few minutes just in thought without their phone, it could could maybe accomplish the same things. Um, okay, and so you you hit on this a little bit when you were telling the story about Joe and and how he said, hey, maybe I wish I would have done things better. I think more broadly, just about your your coaching life and about the leadership. And when you think about the leadership lessons you've learned, what's some things now you wish you knew when you were say my age when you were twenty nine? What are some things you you might change or might know? Well. Uh Again, I'm blessed because of the type of people that have been in my life. Um, I'm going to give you a little background here so you begin to understand how blessed okay. I've really been. My dad, like I said, was leading ground game in the nation in football, uh, which means, uh, you know, that's like the Heisman Trophy winner. That was clear back in 1935. In my backfield in, in one high school, I had 
Taylor, one who's a pretty good golfer, won the National PGA. Had Dick Anderson, who has played on the only undefeated teams of Miami Dolphins with a de- defensive back and outstanding player in the game. And Bobby Anderson, who was a quarterback for the Denver Broncos before Elway came there. So we were all four in one high school. That's pretty good. So you think, well, you can't get better than that. Then I get to Oklahoma. And, you know, I have my friends are like Steve Owens, a Heisman Trophy winner, and my coach, uh, as good as they get, and my workout partner as well, Wayne Wells, Olympic champion. So they're in my life. And I think, well, I can't get better than that. And I get to North Carolina, and Dean's, I work with Dean Smith. Uh, my first person in my class that I ever taught was Lawrence Taylor, who's as good a football player as has ever been. <laughs> and and then, then I, my boys, I didn't make that much money uh, coaching, but how many boys get to play basketball or a horse with Michael Jordan. So they got to do that. So, you know, so then again, I'm thinking, wow, unbelievable the people that have been in my life. And then all of a sudden life hits me and, and I become a Christian. And the next thing I know, I'm sitting in the front room with Billy Graham and I do talks with Ann Graham lots, his, his uh, daughter. And uh, so just wherever I've been in life, God has really been good and put unbelievable people in my life. And I've been thankful to learn from them. And my job is to make people just a little bit better and, and encourage them. I think I'm supposed to be an encourager and help people be a little bit better than they were before I met them. And I think that's why you've been so successful is that you provide value to people and, and um, you know, you're trying to help others. And I think so if we tie it back to the, to the original question, and so you know, you, you've had all of these experiences, you've been around all these incredible people, and I think it just shows how important the people you associate with are, you know, what's something you know now that that maybe you didn't know when you were my age or even in your early 30s? And for, so, for example, maybe if you wish you had more patience then or didn't stress about the little things. Or is there anything in particular that stands out that you wish you knew back then that you know now? Yeah, uh, I wish I knew more about – I wish I could have been a better father. Uh, I wish I knew some of the things that, you know, I did the best I could, and, and I think I was – sometimes a better father to some of my wrestlers than I was to my own sons. Uh, I would have changed my priorities uh, in terms of what's really important. You know, uh, you know, when it comes really right down to it is my priority list. When I left, I got God first, my wife second, my family third. And, you know, when you start, if I'd have started doing that before, uh, you know, I think I, I could have been even more successful and helped more people. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That's something that, Man, it just seems like it's almost inevitable, though. People who achieve hyper levels of success, certain parts of their personal life get neglected a little bit, it sounds like, no matter who you are. And that, that was certainly the case with you. Um, I mean, just what you mentioned there. But I think getting that, those priorities in line is something that can keep us on track. Um, last question is, and this is more just kind of, a, kind of joking, and you mentioned it earlier, but did you ever interact with Michael Jordan? What was he like back then um, at, at UNC? Well, Michael Jordan has unbelievable talent. But what people a lot of times, and I, I've had him, and what a lot of people don't realize is that he was cut from his junior high, high school team, and his high school coach part of t- told him, say, look, if, if you'll do everything I tell you, I'll let you come back on the team. And he did. And then what people don't understand is what a hard worker he was. I'd watch practice. When Coach Smith would blow the whistle, he'd be the first one back. He'd be the last one to leave. He'd lead in the sprints. A lot of people don't understand what a hard worker he was. And uh, the things that he became, he had the talent too. But, you know, when you have the talent and do the work and do the things he did, that's when you get the superstars. Yeah. And so that's what really stood out to you is just how hard he worked and, 
and obviously just his, his vision and for what he wanted to do, it seemed like it never wavered, even when he had all the fame and, and money and success. Well, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's a tremendous athlete, and I'm fortunate he's been in my life. And, uh, he was fortunate to have Coach Smith as, as his coach because Coach Smith would, uh, you know, they, they used to have a saying here, who can hold Michael Jordan to 20 points? And they say, Dean Smith. And uh, who's that? I said, it's huh. his coach. And said, how could he hold him 20 points? Because if he didn't play defense, he sat him down. So he taught him all right. the things that he had to have. Uh, and, you know, at the, when he was going through it, Michael didn't, didn't appreciate it, didn't always like it. But later on, he, you know, I've got pictures of him kissing him on the head. Later on, he gives him all the credit for the success that he had. Right. Totally. Now, that's one thing my dad always said was how good of a defensive player he was. So that's, that's ironic. It com- kind of comes back to those original stories with Coach Smith. Um, well, uh, Coach Lane, this has been really fun, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. The last thing we always ask our, our guests uh, is, you know, if you had to summarize in a sentence or two, what has wrestling done to change your life? You know, how would you, how would you answer that? Uh, I, it was a process I wanted to change first, uh, and I had accepted Christ, and uh, but I wasn't man enough to, to still live it. And then I was driving home after the uh, national championships. They gave us a party. We held here in 94. And on the way home, I had a wreck, and uh, it stopped my heart, and I almost didn't live. And uh, when I came out from that, I realized I had a whole lot to be thankful for and a whole lot more to do. So uh, I'm thankful, uh, even though I didn't like it when it happened, I'm thankful it happened. I hope thankful it changed my life. And I, I just try to do the best I can from that point on. Wow. That, I didn't know that. So coming back from the Nationals, probably had a few drinks, got into a car crash, and that was kind of like an, that was like kind of like your moment of truth, so to speak, to, yeah. to wake yeah. up and, and change your life. Wow. That's incredible. So do you, do you not drink anymore because of that? No, I still drink, but I don't get drunk and I don't have to wear right. it. You know, I said, you know, <laughs> and and what's great about it, you know, when I fall short, I don't beat myself up because one of the hard, hardest things to do is to uh, believe in yourself. And to you, in order for you to, you have to be able to forgive yourself for the things you do wrong. And when Christ died for it, he took care of all of it. So when I, the reason I try to do better now is because I'm thankful. I know where I would have been, and I'm thankful that I'm not. So I try to do the best I can to show my thankfulness. But I still fall short, and I don't worry about it. I, sometimes when I tell the stories, they, people say, well, I can't believe you told that. I said, why not? I said, it says for all fall short. That means everybody. I said, I don't know where you fall short, but I know that you do because it says you for all. Somewhere, baby. <laughs> yeah. You do so, somewhere. Yep. Man, what a, great, what a great story to end this. And, again, Coach, I just want to thank you for your time, and I hope we can do this again. Um, well, down the road. I really appreciate what you're doing, Ryan. And, and I, I'll tell you, I think it's special. I think people need to hear that type of thing. I'm glad that you're doing it. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know what you took from it and how you're going to put it together, but I, you're professional enough like this that, that I'm excited to, to hear it. I, I know you did a great job for what you had to work well, with. I appreciate it. We're going to run it just as it was. We're not going to cut it or nothing like that. We're just going to put it out there. Um, we'll add an intro to it, we'll add an outro to it, and then we'll we'll publish it out. So I'll, I'll make sure you get a copy of it and you can share with your audience. And um, I think uh, this last thing, I, I can't believe I almost forgot this. If someone wants to hear you speak or someone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best place to do that? Is it social media? Is it a website? Is it your email? Like, what's the best way for well, you, Coach? The best way to go is, because uh, we've just turned this in, it used to be a uh, LLC, but I've turned it into a nonprofit because uh, what people don't understand is my my dad had Alzheimer's, so my the last ten years he didn't even know who I was, and uh, 
and and Dean Smith end up having Alzheimer's and and people don't understand what it does to caregivers because you you don't choose to be a caregiver it chooses you and so I'm I'm doing two things I'm doing an aspect called coaching caregivers and that'll be on my website and then we're also teaching these principles through leadership fitness and impact legacy summit so if they go to my website it'll have that on that and we'll be putting events and they it also has a place how they can contact me and we'll be glad to do it everything we can to help them that's amazing so so cool to hear that you know, that's the cause you're getting behind um well well great coach we'll make sure we post those links in the show notes and uh, we'll get this out to the masses real soon so thank you again sir have a great new year thank you ryan good luck to you this year and i know you're going to do great that's the end of this episode but definitely not the end of the show for more episodes, please go to wrestlingchangemylife.org. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a star rating. Show the love, baby. Show the love. Thank you so much. We'll see you again soon. Peace.